This morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 26 and a little bit of 25. We're, uh, we're at the last bit of this book, uh, and we've had a lot of ground to cover. And so what I'm going to do this morning um, is I'm going to read Acts 26, but also give you a little bit uh, of an intro to it, catch us up on what is going on with Paul, because if you're not reading real, real slow and careful, it is very easy to get lost in this section. We've got Felix, we've got Festus, we've got Ananias from before, we've got Agrippa, we have all these people putting, questioning Paul and putting him on trial, and who, who are they and what is going on? So uh, hopefully I'll bring some clarity to that, and then we're going to, again, this week, think about what hope means to Paul and what hope means to us as Christians living today. So, before we get reading in that, I just, do you find yourself, I, I, was, I was telling my uh, class this morning in Ecclesiastes, you know, it's been basically a year since the last time I got to teach a Sunday school class here in the church, because just as we got our, our last series last year going, and I think we had 20 people upstairs in the room together. We had a great discussion about the, how, how, how we should read the law. It was a great class. I was so excited about it. And then, boom, the next week, we were locked down, and we haven't had the opportunity to do something like that since. I found that in this past year of various levels of quarantine and lockdown, in this, this year of uh, frustrated plans that I have been daydreaming a lot. And I already think that I daydream too much. But now I daydream all the more, and I daydream about silly things, I d- mundane things. I daydream about, about getting together and having, a, and having a meal with strangers and just inviting people that I meet on Sunday over to my home and not having to having to present a, you know, a, a list to each other of who we've interacted recently and what's your, what do you guys do with masks and this is what we do and okay, this, uh, we, can, we can work with that or like, ooh, let's wait another couple months. And I, I daydream about my hands not being chapped and uh, broken all the time from Purell and hand washing and of course this brutal winter cold. I daydream about my, my daughters having playdates with other kids um, about about having dig again, about being able to teach a Sunday school class, um, which thank, I'm, I'm grateful that I was able to do. And again, to some extent, we are able to do these things. And of course, I still daydream about silly things or lofty things and the things of daydreams, but I've been struck in the past year by how simple and t- you know, simple things that I would have taken for granted have become the stuff of daydreams for me. There are so many other examples that we could think of, and I'm sure you have your own. Maybe you've found this yourself. Um, and Paul is going to find himself in, a, in an odd situation here as well, a time between, between goals where he's stuck. And I, I, I certainly resonate with that feeling of being stuck right now. And I, I don't know, the Bible doesn't tell us what Paul was daydream or hoping about, um, but I know what his goals were, and so we can wonder. But I think that as we, as we reflect on, on Acts this morning, and we'll get into the text in a moment, we're going to think about how our daydreams can serve as an act even of worship, and how the hope that we have in Christians can inform the thoughts 
that we consider, and not just the daydreams, but the, the ultimate dreams that we have for our life and for our eternity. So before I read uh, from Acts chapter 26, let's, let's summarize a little bit here. So Paul has been a missionary for a long time now, for years, and he has traveled around the Greek world. He's been in Ephesus. He's been in Philippi. He's been all over. He's been preaching the gospel and establishing churches. And in some places, he's stayed for years at a time, building them up. And during this missionary journey, during these uh, residencies that he's had as a church planner and as a missionary, he's written letters, written letters to uh, other churches, encouraging them, expounding theology for them. These are the letters that we have in our New Testament, the letter to the Corinthians, to the Romans, to the Ephesians, to the Philippians. Some of these letters he will write, he has yet to write at this point in Acts. He'll write them from his place of imprisonment. Uh, ultimately, will write them from Rome. But some letters, like the letter to the Romans, he, he's written at this point. And so it, it, we're coming to the end of his journeys, and Paul comes back to Jerusalem. If you remember uh, when we preached through these, Paul is warned time and time again, if, hey, Paul, if you go to Jerusalem, it, it's not going to be good. You're, you're going to be... And you're going to be imprisoned, you might die. And Paul, Paul is dedicated to it. He, he says, I, no, I'm going. I am, he says in Acts 20, I'm constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. And so he goes. And we know part of his motivation for going from the book of Romans that he wrote. He says that in, in Romans, in his, in his, in his uh, end of that letter, he says that he's going to Jerusalem because throughout his travels, he's been gathering aid, finances, money to bring to the saints, the poor among the Christians in Jerusalem. And that the Gentile churches that Paul has been ministering to and planting are eager to show their Jewish brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, their fellow Christians, that they're with them, that they love them, they support them. And so Paul, in his journey to Jerusalem, is bringing with him this, this financial assistance. This is, you can read this in Romans chapter 15, 25 through 29. And then Paul's goal, as he says in that section, is I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to meet with the, meet with the church there, share this, this, this gift with them, and then I'm coming to you. I'm coming to Rome. That's, that's my goal. That's what I want. Paul wants to get to Rome because not only is it a, a mission field for him, but it tells us in Acts 23, Jesus himself has assured Paul that he will get to Rome. Jesus says to Paul in Acts 23 in a vision, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. So Paul has got a plan. He's got a mission and he has got goals. But as was prophesied, things went poorly in Jerusalem. And when we, as we've been um, looking at the past few weeks, Paul has been imprisoned and is on trial. He's been interrogated by Jewish leaders. He's been interrogated by Roman leaders. He's been imprisoned. He's given his defense multiple times. And in each time, he talks about his hope. And that's really what we have been focusing on and what we're going to get to today in just a moment. So when we find Paul at the end of Acts 24, He's been giving a testimony to a Roman official named Felix. Felix doesn't really care about Paul. He doesn't know what to do with him. To Felix, this all just seems like a strange Jewish problem. Paul's a Jew. 
The people who are mad at him are Jews. They're arguing about some dead guy named Jesus. I don't know what it is, but whatever. He, said, he decides, I'm going to keep Paul in prison. He keeps Paul in prison, it says in Acts 24, for two years. Two years. This is Acts 24, verses 26 and 27. At the same time, he, being Felix, hoped that money would be given to him by Paul, so he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus, and desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. Maybe Felix was aware that Paul had traveled with money, that he had given money. Paul's got connected friends, it seems. And this was a pretty common custom, right? I'll hold, you know, I do you, I do you a favor, you do me a favor, or, you know, you do me a favor and then I'll, I'll take care of you. And so when Felix doesn't get any money from Paul, it says he decides to do the Jews a favor, keep Paul in prison. All right, this guy won't give me any money. Maybe the people who are against him will. And so Paul is very much stuck. He went to Jerusalem with a, with a purpose from God, he accomplished that, and then he went on to do his next thing, and he has been prevented from it. And it is, it is not just that he's been on trial, he has been in prison with no charges against him for two years. So to, to, to assume that Paul is frustrated and daydreaming, I do not think is a stretch. Paul is daydreaming, hoping, and desiring to get to Rome to get to the people who he's written his letter to, to continue to minister to them, to preach the gospel, as Jesus himself has promised Paul he will. And so I, I cannot imagine the level of frustration that Paul is experiencing as he wastes his time in this prison cell. In Acts chapter 25, Felix has left. A new, a new Roman governor has come in. His name is Festus. Uh, he similarly does not know what to do with Paul. And we're not going to read all of 25, though I, if you're reading along with us, if you're studying this in your community group, I do encourage you, please read all of Acts 25. Um, but the summary of this is, basically, there's, another, there's a Jewish king. Festus decides, oh, I'm going to dump Paul on this guy instead. His name is Agrippa. And the process just continues. No one knows what to do with him, but they keep interrogating him. Maybe they're going to get something out of this. Um, all of that to be said, King Agrippa, a, a Jewish king who has made an alliance with Rome, decides, all right, I want to hear, hear what this prisoner has to say. I want to hear the charges against him. This is weird and interesting. And so, finally, in Acts chapter 26, Paul is given permission to speak. And this is what he has to say. Uh, you can follow along. This is Acts chapter 26, and we're going to read the entire chapter. So this is the Jewish king Agrippa in alliance with Rome, giving Paul a chance to speak on his behalf. Acts 26, So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today, against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently 
my manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made to by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship night and day. For this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and so I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priests, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them, and I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in a raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when they had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you were persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me to, which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes so that they might turn from darkness to light and from the power of satan to god that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and then in Jerusalem and all throughout the region of Judea and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. For this reason, the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. To this day, I have had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying these things in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. But Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. For the king knows about these things, and to him I speak boldly. For I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, 
except for these chains. Then the king rose, and the governor, and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. This is God's word. This is a long passage, and you'll notice that it includes a story we have heard before, actually twice before. This is the third time in the book of Acts that Paul's testimony, his conversion experience meeting Jesus on the Damascus Road, is repeated for us. Luke, our, our author, has, has made sure to include this. He, you know, he's, he's not cut that part of the speech out because we already know it. Right? He, wants us to, he wants to reaffirm this again. He wants us to, one, believe Paul's testimony. Luke's early audience may have been skeptical of Paul. They might have doubted his, his legitimacy, either because he used to persecute Christians or now because he's bringing in Gentiles. There are many reasons to doubt Paul, and Luke wants us to trust him. But all the more, as we, and as we said the last time we looked at Paul's, Paul's testimony in the book of Acts, Paul's testimony is his defense. When Paul gives his defense, that's what he says. He talks about how he belongs to Jesus, how he's been commissioned by him. That's all he has. That's what he relies on. And that testimony is the source of his hope, the hope that we're going to focus on this morning. So you'll notice at the end of that passage, there's a, there's a statement you know, he could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. As I said before, Paul's got no charges against him. He's just stuck in prison. But remember, Paul's goal here is to get to Rome. Paul's goal is to preach the gospel. And so by any means necessary, he wants to get out of there. And so before there's even anything to appeal to, Paul says, I'm a citizen. I demand to be seen by Caesar himself and his request is granted. This is a really strange legal process. I mean, you can't appeal to the Supreme Court until there's a verdict to appeal to, right? Paul doesn't even have charges, but that's just it. Paul is dedicated to getting to Rome, and if he has to go to Rome as a prisoner, so be it. Paul's circumstances, his frustrations, are not going to hold him back from accomplishing the purpose that Jesus has given him. And the thing that, that makes all of this possible is what Paul calls his hope. And this is most, this is summarized for us in verses 4 through 7, 4 through 8. Paul talks about how he was a Pharisee. And Pharisees, in, in our Christian understanding, often get a bad rap because, of course, they did oppose Jesus, and Jesus called them out for their hypocrisy. But in the ancient world, Pharisees were, were Jews who took the Bible seriously. They ultimately took it too seriously in many ways, especially in concerns of the law. But the Pharisees, in contrast to some other Jews, believed that God really would raise the dead on the last day, that there would be a resurrection of both the righteous and the unrighteous, that people who were dead would be alive again. And Paul, coming out of that tradition, believes that firmly and strongly. And what Paul is able to see that other Pharisees were not is that Jesus 
is the answer, the fulfillment, the confirmation of that hope. Jesus is the end to that debate. Jesus rose from the dead, and so Paul will too. That's Paul's hope. That is the hope that he says was preached by Moses and the prophets. He says in Acts 26, this is the hope which our 12 tribes hope to attain as they earnestly worship day and night. And it's for this that I'm being accused. Paul's appeal is to say, I'm not doing anything new. I'm not bringing in strange things. I'm telling you that the hope that we, our people have had is fulfilled in Jesus and that we can share that hope with the entire world. There are a few places in the Old Testament that talk about resurrection from the dead. One of them is in Isaiah 26. Isaiah 26, verse, verse 19 in the context of talking about God's judgment and the suffering of Israel, Isaiah says, your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy, for your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. The prophet Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verses 2 and 3 Said, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Jesus was often questioned or interrogated about his preaching about the resurrection. In Matthew, Chapter 22, Sadducees, who did not believe in the resurrection, tried to trick Jesus. They say, Teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring left to his wife, his left, no offspring left his wife to his brother. So to the second and the third, down to the seventh. After, after them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all were married to her. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said, about, said to you by God? I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Is he not God of the dead, but of the living? And when the crowd heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. Jesus came to atone for sin, to teach us how to live. But one of the most important things that he taught about was that there was a resurrection of the dead. And it's interesting, when, as, we, as we go through these passages in Acts, we keep talking about Paul's hope. What is Paul's hope? Paul never mentions going to heaven. And so much of the Christian conversation currently, or, or you know, in contempor contemporarily in our lives, is that 
when we die, we either go to heaven or we go to hell, and that's, that's sort of it. And Jesus saves us from our sins so we don't go to hell, and instead we go to heaven. This is not wrong, but you'll never read Paul describe his hope that way. He never talks about that. And it's strange that we have adopted that kind of language. We're missing the fullness of hope. There's all, there's all sorts of silly questions that we ask, like the Sadducees did. They ask, all right, this guy, this guy, this wife, uh, this woman, she had seven husbands, so it can't be a resurrection. Think about it, it's ridiculous. One to resurrected, who's she going to be married to? And Jesus has an answer to that. But we, we ask similarly, like, will my, will my pets be in heaven? Will I, like, will I be able to, to enjoy my, my hobbies in heaven? Like, can I play video games in heaven? Um, are we just going to sing all the time in heaven? Because, man, I don't like singing and I'm not a good singer. And, man, I don't know if I want to do that forever. What are we going to do? This seems weird. I, I, I know that this is what I'm supposed to desire and hope for, but um, I got questions. And then you, you read the Bible, and those questions don't seem to get answered. What are we going to do in heaven? We're going to worship God? That seems clear. There won't be pain or tears anymore. That seems clear. But one of the reasons why that question is hard to answer is because it's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. We've missed the scope of hope. We're not hoping that when we die, we'll get to sit on a cloud and play a harp and sing. Now, again, don't get me wrong. Those who are dead and believe in Christ are with him. That is very clear. Jesus said that to the prisoner who was crucified next to him, who believes him. He says to him, this day you will be with me in paradise, right? If you want to dig into scripture to find out what paradise is like and what we're going to be doing there, again, you're not going to find a lot of answers. But if you want to know what life after death is like, it's called the resurrection, and it's going to be a lot like it is now. Think about this. Both of the pa- all the passages that we read speak about the dead in the earth living again. Uh, in Daniel, he uses the dust of the earth. He's recalling the curse in Genesis where God says, because of sin, you were made from dust and you will die. You will return to dust. But the hope, is, the hope though, for Daniel is that those who sleep in the dust of the earth, those who have died, will live again. In fact, everyone who has ever died is going to live again. As Paul mentioned when he talked about his hope last week, a resurrection of the dead, both the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous. As Daniel says, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting content. We are right when we think that there is an ultimate, there are two ultimate ends, one of judgment and one of life, heaven and hell. But really we should be saying new earth, new life, and hell. New heaven, new earth, new life. So when we think about what is this going to be like, 
as we daydream and wonder, there are some answers that we have. In Isaiah chapter 11, it says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, the calf and the lion, the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. He goes on, They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Our hope is in a new earth. We're not going to exist as spirits. We're going to be resurrected human beings. We're going to eat and drink. We're going to feel the light on our face. We can walk in grass and sand. We can enjoy the beauty of creation. Animals will live together in peace. The, the whole ecosystem and way the world works will be perfected, will be renewed. And the things that would otherwise bring us fear or pain will instead bring us joy. There's certainly a poetry in the prophecy that Isaiah gives about there being peace between animals that would otherwise be enemies. But there will be animals. There will be an earth. There will be food to eat and things to do. People to love. Jesus himself rose from the dead. That's not, that we know that, right? But what Paul says is that Jesus is the first to rise from the dead. And we see this in his life. Jesus sits and eats with his disciples on a beach after he's been risen from the dead. Jesus shows his disciples his hands and his feet. They touch him. He's real. We will be like that. And, the, and those that we love that have died knowing Christ as their Savior will be like that. We're not hoping to sit on a cloud with somebody. We're hoping that the people that we love who have died will embrace us again. Just as the disciples held Jesus' hands and saw his face, we will hold their hands and see their face. We'll hear their voices. We will tell them that we love them. And they will tell us the same. People who we thought were our enemies and those we never knew will be our family. We will eat together and weep no more. Paul, in his sermon, in his defense, this is what he appeals to. This is the hope that every Jewish person has that is now shared with every person who has ever lived and ever will that they can live again in a world that is not broken, but that is good. And they will not just be with God forever, but with one another. That we will enjoy each other's company. That we will, we will work and enjoy it as we were supposed to, as we were created to in the beginning in Genesis. It will be, we will be flesh and blood. We will breathe air and plant grass and flowers. We will enjoy light and enjoy the beauty of mountains and oceans and fields. We will live forever.
truly alive and at peace. So when Paul is sitting in prison for years, for two years, waiting, wanting to, co- take, to convey this message, I'm sure he dreamed about being in Rome and seeing, seeing, the, seeing the sights there, not to marvel at them, but, but to be there, right, to, to speak to those people. But all the more, the dream that Paul has that keeps him going through all of these challenges and trials again and again is the knowledge that though he may live this life in chains, he will live again in glory with his Savior and with those he he loves. He wants as many people to join him in that life as possible. And that's what he says to Felix and to the king. They're, they're, they're shocked at him. Paul, you're ridiculous. This is so silly. This is outlandish. You've gone mad. Do you really think that you could convince us to believe this in such a short period of time, Paul? What are you thinking? And Paul says, I have nothing else to say. I do, yes. If it takes a short time or a long time, I hope that everyone becomes like me, full of this hope, passion, and conviction that Jesus is alive, risen from the dead, so that though I suffer, though I live in chains, though I will die, I will rise with him. When we, when I daydream about what life will be like when all of these COVID restrictions have gone and the concern over this is rightfully passed, if that, whether that day comes soon or a long ways, what I'm really hoping for, when I hope for life to get back to normal, what I'm really hoping for is for the world to be back to normal. And I have to admit, we have to admit, I I don't know what normal is. Normal, God's purpose the goodness is better than anything I've already lived through. And so whatever the situation is with the immediate future with COVID, whatever life is going to bring at us next and in the years and decades to come, no normal is ever going to be satisfying. No normal is ever going to be good enough. So when I daydream about those things, I'm not wrong to, but I have to remind myself what I really want, what I really need, is to rise from the dead. The Bible says that we're dead in our trespasses and sin. And so to an extent, we live with death. We live with restriction. Even at our best. And so what we have to hope for will be better than anything we've experienced, better than anything we've known. We have feasted, we have loved, we have shared, we have enjoyed, uh, we have enjoyed our work, we've accomplished things. All of those things we will enjoy in the new heaven and the new earth, and they will be better than we've ever experienced. This is the hope and promise that is confirmed by Jesus' resurrection from the dead, that sustains Paul through every trial and every frustration. How much more 
can that hope inspire and sustain us as we live with frustration and with pain? We are going to live again. We are going to live with Jesus. We are going to live with Paul. We are going to be at peace. We're going to sing in response to this passage a song about feasting and being with God. The song says, We will feast in the house of Zion. We will sing with our hearts restored. He has done great things. We will say together, We will feast and weep no more. We are looking forward to a concrete, real reality, a future where we are with God, we eat and drink, we sing, yes, but it's so much more than that. We will be at peace because of Jesus. I hope that as you dwell on that and think about it, that God in his goodness will bring it to life for you. That as we sing and as we reflect, you will experience the hope that Paul did. Even, even, even I pray this for myself, that I would deepen my understanding and my love for what God has done for us in Jesus. And that as I hope for the future, as we all hope for the future, that our hope would be grounded in the extravagant, better than we could imagine promise of a new heaven and a new earth. Let's pray together. God,